Titus chapter 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which according with goodness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his words through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and the children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hostile, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy words as taught so that he may be able to give instructions in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of his own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Shall we pray? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come into your presence to lift up holy hands in prayer with gratitude and thanksgiving. For you are a God who cares for your people. In the midst of a world that is full of anger and division, in a world that is hurting, isolated, and fractured, though we have much to that joins us together, we are far apart. Father, I pray that the gospel would teach us how to love our neighbor as ourselves, to not be culpable of the mud-slinging, of the finger-pointing, of the shaming, Father, but that we would seek to love our neighbor as Christ loved his neighbor, friend to sinners. Lord, it is the prideful, it is the self-righteous that you scorned the most, but it is the humble and the contrite in heart that you call to yourself. Father, you have given us your spirit to go and empower us and give us courage and clarity as we proclaim the gospel 
here and throughout our country and throughout our world. And Father, you are the good shepherd. And we pray for those this morning who are separated from us. Father, I pray especially this morning for Dave and Pat Curry, Lord, as they uh, struggle with uh, cancer. Father, I know he longs to be with the people, and I pray that you would encourage him and give us ways that we can tangibly show the love of Christ and the love that we have for Dave and for Pat. Father, I pray for Virginia this morning as she is steadily recovering, and I pray that she would be, feel the love of Christ and the love of her neighbor. Father, I also uh, pray for the Rossens that are separated from us this morning. We love them well, and as they love uh, Frank, as he is in uh, recovery now, and I pray that you would give them opportunities that they would share the love of Christ with him. Father, and I pray for Jesse as she is battling. Um, and Father, I pray that you would give her strength of body. Pray for Emily and Rainey and Ryder and Caleb as they love their mom and daughter. Father, we know that you are sovereign over heaven and earth. You are sovereign over our bodies as well. You have equipped doctors and nurses with incredible knowledge of how the human body functions and how medicine and science have given us wonderful means of healing and recovering. But Father, we recognize that they will not be efficient unless you touch their hands. Father, I pray that you would make those treatments effective that they may all, for all the days of their lives, be filled with your glory and make much of who you are and what you have done. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters who are worshiping around us in other churches here in our city and churches and brothers and sisters in parts of our world. And I pray that they would be lights to the nation, bringing the love of God through Christ to many places of our world that there are billions of people that have never heard the name of Christ. And I pray that we would be brilliant lights, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Father, we thank you that we have the promise of your spirit and the power to be witnesses in Jacksonville, in the United States, and all throughout the world. In the name that is above all names, Jesus Christ, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. We continue um, the four, maybe five week session called a sermon series called Shepherd the Flock, really looking at, as I called it, the call to biblical faithfulness and biblical uh, faithfulness in biblical leadership. And last week we looked at the call or the character of the shepherd from 1 uh, Timothy 3, and today we look at Titus chapter 1. 
And as you start to think about pastoral ministry, and sometimes there is charm in the idea of a one-man band. Who doesn't love Bert from Mary Poppins, right? He is able to sing and dance. He plays the harmonica and the accordion simultaneously. With a kick of his legs, he's able to do the cymbal, a jerk of his foot, the bass, and then a tilt of his head, the horn. He can literally sing and he can dance and he can play music all at the one time. And one-man bands, if you've ever been in big cities and places where they have them, they amuse us because, oh, I know that song. And one guy is playing all the instruments. We throw a couple dollars in his hat, but I promise you we never buy the album. Because honestly, there is a vast difference when we think about um, Bert singing Hey Jude or I Want to Hold Your Hand versus John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Uh, when we want to listen to be able to a song like Someone Like You or Rolling in the Deep, we think of Adele back by the London Philharmonic Orchestra who probably sing it a little better than Bert could pull it off. The same truth applies towards church leadership. One man is simply not equipped with all the knowledge, all the gifting, all the wisdom necessary to shepherd the flock of God, no matter how godly and how talented he might be. A church, as we understand, always reflects its leadership, for better or for worse. If the leadership is evangelistic and the leadership is passionate, if the leadership is compassionate and biblically minded, the church will be evangelistic and compassionate and biblically minded. If the leadership is self-centered and judgmental and cold, the congregation will be judgmental, self-centered and cold. A church will never progress farther than the spiritual maturity of its leaders. Let me say that again. A church will never progress farther than the spiritual maturity of its leaders. Therefore, it is a plurality of shepherds is necessary and biblically mandated in Scripture. Dave Harvey, in the book that, uh, the book of the month, the book that Dave Curry put in my hand and says, we need this, and I agree with him wholeheartedly, says this, Healthy plurality equals durable churches. And he writes that a plurality of shepherd who model lives of character and integrity are important for, as he says, and I quote, I stole his big idea from my big idea, but I cited it so it's not cheating or plagiarism. The quality of your elder plurality determines the health of your church. The quality of your elder plurality determines the health of your church. And I want to give you, to that end, I want to give you three words today that we're going to look at in Titus chapter 1. Uh, and it's beautifully alliterated. I worked very hard on coming up with that. Um, you know, that gives me extra points in Baptist world. Um, but one, plurality. Two, paradigm. And three, protection. Plurality, paradigm, and protection. Many of you over the, have been a part of our congregation over the past five years, and you have come to know me and to know my talents and my strengths. 
And now during that same time, it has become painfully obvious my faults and my weaknesses and my limitations. Some have left the church because of them. Some have criticized me. Some have prayed for my improvement. Lord, help him. He needs all that he can get. And some have simply ignored it. Oh, he's such a nice boy. And they ignore it. The fact of the matter is, though, I am not equipped nor designed to shepherd the congregation on my own. Why? I can't do everything. I don't have everything, all the gifts and wisdom and the necessary leadership to be able to do that. I'm not called to do it, nor am I equipped to do it. Therefore, we as a congregation need a healthy plurality that with diverse strengths and weaknesses that are covered by one another. Um, and to be able to, to, be able to shepherd the, the flock of God with wisdom, with compassion, and with love. We need a healthy plurality. You may say, well, that makes a lot of sense. I, you know, I, I can understand that. You need more than one person to do that because one person can quickly, as we've seen so often, hijack a group of people and lead them astray according to what they want. But how can we find this in Scripture? And often, in the last hundred years, that hasn't been the case. It's usually, in a lot of Baptist churches, it's the pastor that calls the shots, and sometimes it's the deacons that are calling the shots and telling the pastor what shots he needs to call. But in reality, in Scripture, there is a biblical pattern and, and a biblical mandate for a plurality of shepherds, a plurality of pastors, paid and unpaid. Shepherds that receive their, in, uh, their in income from the church and shepherds that re receive their income elsewhere. If you're not already there, turn to Titus chapter 1. It's on page 998 of your pew Bibles. If you're new to the whole um, books of the Bible, you can go right in the front and there's a glossary where you can find uh, the book and then a page number to be able to find that. If in doubt, find an Awana child and that's in Sparks and they have to memorize the books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they can t sing the song to you until you get to Titus. Last week, we looked at the character of the shepherds, what the shepherds should be doing and how they should be living, but now we turn our attention to a healthy plurality that is necessary within the church. And we start by looking in verse 5 to the plurality. What Paul is doing in this book of Titus, he is writing to instruct Titus who lives on the little Mediterranean island of Crete. We don't know a lot about Titus, to be honest, but he was a leader of a church and probably in an area where the church was very young and disorganized at this point. But he was in his book, he's writing how the gospel impacts our life and our practice and our faith our belief and our behavior, and he writes with urgency because he knows that this little fledgling church, there's a threat that is from the outside of false teachers who will lead this little young church astray because they don't know any better. They have no idea about the doctrines and the teachings of Jesus, and so these false teachers can come in with good, fancy, spiritual-sounding arguments and lead them astray. So the answer that Paul gives to these people is not that, Titus, you go figure out, all, find the false teachers and preach hard against them while you point at them. He says, no. He says, 
put what remained in order and notice. How do they put what remains in order? Appoint elders, plural, in every town as I directed you. Paul knows the unfinished business that Crete has and how false teachers can easily lead them away. And he says, appoint elders, plural, in every town to be able to serve as shepherds to them. The plurality of elders are the ones who are responsible to protect the flock by resisting error that had threatened the church. Notice that, uh, and, and you may ask, well, maybe the plurality of elders is only for Crete. Only that island is supposed to do that. But you can see in Scripture there are many places where a plurality of elders, in whenever elders and overseers are mentioned, it's always in the plural. Notice Acts 14.23, And when they had appointed elders, plural, and that's presbyteroi, for them in every church, and with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And then it continues in 1 Timothy 5.17. In chapter 3, he gives the qualifications, and then he says, let the elders who rule be considered worthy of double honor, especially, and you can get a glimpse into the responsibilities of the elders, those who labor in preaching and in teaching. This is not a one-man band a la Bert from Mary Poppins. Uh, you can also see in the handout that I had, the, the, the front of the handout, which I put somewhere, there are almost about 12 different places in Scripture where um, there's examples of the plurality of elders. And then there's even spots where elders are mentioned in the plural in passing. The elders are responsible to teach doctrine, to lead and guide in prayer, to preach and teach and to ordain new elders and for the oversight of the congregation. The flock of God is to be led by a team and through a, and through a team of shepherds by a healthy plurality in the church. John Stott writes this, he says, a one-person pastorate is not a New Testament model of the local church. It is rather a team ministry that room can be found for different people with different gifts so that different specialties ordained and lay, full-time and part-time, salaried and volunteer may be able to shepherd the flock. Multiple elders distribute the weight and the burden of ministry. For if you are put the responsibility of leading the flock on one man, it will overload him, it will burn him out, and I promise you, it will inevitably crush him. Only the good shepherd is capable of bearing the full responsibility of the flock of God on his shoulders. And he has called a plurality of under-shepherds to lighten the load by sharing the burden of ministry. You can see in Scripture that there is a plurality of shepherds, of elders, a.k.a. overseers, a.k.a. shepherds slash pastors. 
but not only a, just a plurality of people, because if you get all the same people with the same gifts and they look the same way, they're all whack and qua- uh, uh, quack and waddle the same and all lead uh, in, into uh, danger. But you need a plurality of gifts. The benefits of shared leadership do not stop with just a division of labor, but it allows the leaders to lead according to their strength. All elders have a general task of feeding and maintaining and protecting the flock, yet they do it in different ways. Different ways according to the gifting and the talent and the life experience that each elder has. You must have a diversity in the shepherds or they will all lead the flock astray together. Brothers and sisters, elders are a divinely empowered toolbox equipped to serve the church. Now, if you've ever done a home improvement project and you don't have just a simple task and you don't have the right tool, what happens? You usually break the thing you're trying to fix and you're like, any monkey could do this, but you're just, you're, and you break it and then you have to spend $75 on a new widget, which would have cost nothing with the right tool. You need hammers and wrenches and screwdrivers and tape measures. And if you don't, you cause damage to the things you're trying to take, maintain and to fix. Like a good toolbox, you need a diverse array of gifts or the shepherds will do damage to the flock. Therefore, you need a plurality of shepherds with a plurality of gifts. You need elders who are gifted communicators and elders who are carefully meditate on doctrine. You have elders with mountain-moving faith and elders who are careful to count the cost. You need elders who push the group to trust God in their decisions and elders who guard against foolish impulses. You need elders who are bold and unflappable and elders who are gentle and compassionate. You need elders who have a passion for evangelism, and you need elders who have a passion for doctrine. You need elders who are passionate for preaching and elders who are passionate for intercessory intercessory prayer. If you look on the back side of your your, um, handout, you see a healthy plurality is the foundation for a healthy church. Uh, Your homework is to read both sides of these, and if you have any questions, I'd love to do that. These are both from the book of the month. But I want you to look at number one and number four specifically. Number one says, plurality reflects the co-equality, unity, and community expressed by the Trinity. There is one God in three persons. The Father, and they work together to accomplish salvation. Ephesians chapter 1 says the Father has declared our adoption before the foundations of the earth. And it is the Son who came to accomplish our redemption on the cross by giving His life. And it is the Holy Spirit who works to guarantee and to seal our adoption. Three persons working with one unity and one goal towards one end is the salvation of the world. Plurality not only in elders reflects the heart and the person of God, 
But also, number four, notice this. Plurality acknowledges human limitations by recognizing that no one elder can possess the full complement of gifts God intends to use, bless, and build the church. For instance, the practice of plurality discourages narcissistic personalities who look to exercise unique and exclusive authority or control within the team. One, you really don't want narcissistic personalities as an elder. That was a failure of 1 Timothy chapter 3, but we continue. This practice also calls forward timid leaders to shoulder the weight of governing responsibility. Responsibility. Where plurality truly exists, pastors remain appropriately engaged, loved, guided, harnessed, and accountable. Ocean Park, without a healthy plurality, you have a church that is out of alignment. It will suffer from a disjointed and disorderly leadership susceptible to weakness and blind spots and limitations of its individual leadership. A healthy church has a healthy plurality of gifts in a plurality of shepherds. For the quality of your elder plurality determines the health of your church. Faithful church leadership is not only a plurality, but it's also a paradigm, a paradigm for the church. Notice verses 6 through 8. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination... For an overseer, notice the word change. Uh, Titus is talking about elders, and then the word changes to overseer because those words, though they're different in the Greek, are synonyms for the same office. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitality, a hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. In 1993, Charles Barkley made headlines when he uttered the infamous words in this Nike commercial, I'm not a role model. Just because I dunk a basketball doesn't mean I should raise your kids. He was wrong in the fact that he is a role model, and he was right in the fact that he shouldn't, because he plays basketball, raise our kids. We all, brothers and sisters, have role models. We just don't all have good role models. Those who serve as under-shepherds of the church are called to serve as role models to their fellow sheep. The qualifications that we are listed here in verse 6 through 8 are not just for those who are candidates for the office of elder. This essence of this list is um, really Christ-likeness. And the elders of the church are called to be Christ-like as an example to their fellow shepherds. And there's, the essence of the list is in one word. That's, it's begun in the list in 1 Timothy, and it's repeated twice here in Titus chapter 1. Verse 6, if anyone is above reproach. Then in verse 7, for an overseer, is God, as God's steward, must be above reproach. A shepherd of the flock of God must be blameless in his Christian walk. He lives his life in such a way that he's not open to legitimate accusation or suspicion in his marriage, in his home, in his conduct, in his work, or in his reputation. As you look at the qualifications of the leader, it becomes evident that this is not just for the elders, but this is for all of the church. 
And the elders are called to serve as an example of how the gospel affects your faith and your practice, your belief and your behavior. Last week on the way out, I talked to um, a, a lady who had a journal underneath her arm and she was really excited. And she says, this is so great. Uh, I took lots of note because this is exactly what I need to lead and to teach my students. See, she wasn't thinking about elders. She was thinking about how Christ-likeness affects her everyday life in the classroom as she loves the little minions running around the classroom. How she needs to have uh, self-control and compassion and gentleness as she loves her children and teaches them of the wonder of God's creation and points them to their Creator, Jesus Christ. See, the list of elder qualifications is for elder candidates and elders, but it's also for the whole church. It is a paradigm of how the gospel is to affect our everyday life. These qualifications are for stay-at-home moms and moms who juggle the responsibility of careers and children. The students in kindergarten to students in junior high, from students in high school all the way to college and beyond. It's for people who own their own business and people who work for somebody else. These lists are people just starting out on their career and those who are winding their career up. From grandparents to grandchildren, students to teachers, leaders to followers, the, the, the elders are role models for the flock to uh, imitate, not intimidate, make, imitate. We see this uh, played out in Paul. Paul says this, be imitators of me, as I am an imitator of who? Christ. We need examples of people in our life to see what it looks like for a man or a woman to follow Christ. Then he continues in Philippians 4.9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. It's incredible that Paul is offering his life as an example of how the flock of God is to live. Live lives that are above reproach at home and at work and at play. Likewise, the life of the elders is to be a life that imitates Christ and serves as a paradigm for the flock to follow. Both men and women young and old, rich and poor, spiritually mature believers and new believers. Ocean Park, those who serve as shepherds to Christ's flock have lives that are above reproach, that are worthy to be respected and to Im and imitated. The shepherds of the flock lead by example, not by force, by humble service, not by self-assertion. They encourage their fellow sheep to walk along beside them and learn how to live with joy and with gratitude when, uh, as they follow the chief shepherd. They invite people into their lives when the grass is green and the waters are still. And they model faith and courage when the valleys are dark and the enemies are near. They model the life of the good shepherd to their fellow sheep. They provide a paradigm of how the gospel changes your everyday life. And this is why it's so important 
that I'm, I'm the elder of the church. Now, I was blessed for 12 years that I worked with corporate America. I worked for AT&T, and I took phone calls, and I got screamed at by my customers and my supervisors, and at times my coworkers. And I knew the pressure of, of getting your numbers and falsifying those reports so you can hit those bonuses when you were one little caller ID short of a big bonus. I know the temptation. Well, they'll never figure it out. And I know the difficulty, but you also need shepherds who are not sitting in office all week studying and preparing. You need shepherds who every day go and punch the time clock and, and live out how you balance work in a, uh, in a secular vocation and how you balance prayer and interaction. You need pastors who are devoted to the study of the gospel and pastors who are living out the gospel in the, in the marketplace. We need that plurality of examples and gifting and plurality of shepherds that model that into our life because the quality of your elder plurality determines the health of your church. We're called to have a plurality of shepherds, a paradigm for the sheep, and also for the protection of the sheep in verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. We live in a world of ideas. And ideas have consequences. Every unjust law, every genocide, every war, and every uh, revolution began with idea and is fueled by ideas, some good, some terrible. Ideas that are wrought in the human heart, um, ideas that value one thing over another, one person over another, one value over another. Ideas can build up and ideas can tear down. Ideas can inspire us to greatness or drive us to paranoia. Ideas unite us and, and, uh, and ideas drive us away from one another. Ideas protect us and ideas destroy us. Ideas have power. And Paul knew the power of our ideas, or as he often says, doctrine. In uh, Acts chapter 20, Paul is writing to the elders. He calls them to himself and he uh, gives them their task and he warns them about what is coming just around the river bend. And he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, often wolves that are clothed in sheep's skin and not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. There are dangers from outside the flock, and there are dangers from inside the flock. To draw away the disciples after them. Like the wolf, don't think of Wiley e. Coyote, because he wasn't very good at it, but the wolf that gets the sheep's clothing and whispers in the other sheep's ears, listen, let's go over there. The waters look great. Look on that hill, the, the, the grass is green. And they convince the sheep to leave the safety of the sheepfold, the safety of the watch of the shepherds. And so what Paul says, he says, be alert, watch, 
Watch outside on the, in the tree line and the, and the hills for wolves, but look amongst the flock as well because you never know where they come from. Be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. The work of, our shep- of a shepherd is grueling task. Dangerous ideas will not just come in in the form of blatant depravity and immorality, but deception that's shrouded in what appears to be godliness or piety or holiness. But false shepherds will take an ounce of truth and twist it and pervert things. They will attempt to convince the flock to devote themselves to religious things, to moral living that will subtly lead them away from the protection of the good shepherd. So what can be done when a danger like this exists in our world, in Paul's world? He says, appoint shepherds that can protect the flock by knowing and teaching and defending sound doctrine or gospel ideas. Notice verse 9, know the truth. He must have a, a firm hold, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. An elder must hold firmly to the faith that was handed down by the apostles. He must be thoroughly convinced of the genuine truth of the gospel and devote himself to knowing the gospel and strengthening um, himself by the gospel. A weak shepherd cannot protect the sheep, nor can an ill-advised shepherd. He must have a strong faith to withstand the attacks of the enemy. A strong knowledge of genuine gospel truth so he can identify the crafty counterfeits of the, of the enemies. John Calvin writes in his commentaries, and indeed, nothing is more dangerous than fickle persons, talking about shepherds, fickle shepherds who easily suffer themselves to be carried away in various kinds of doctrines, or as Paul says, every whim that comes along tossed by the waves. When a pastor does not steadfastly adhere to the doctrine of which he ought to be uh, the unshaken defender, in short, a pastor there is demanding, demanded not only learning, but a zeal for pure doctrine as never to depart from it. The shepherds of the church must know the truth of the gospel and hold firm to it. Not only do they know the gospel, because it's not enough just to know. I know so many churches that just so much theological knowledge, they can't get their their heads through the double doors. They have it here, but it's not connected to their hearts. And so what happens is we need to know the church and truth and teach the truth so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, be able that our orthodoxy should play out in orthopraxy, in, in application. How does the gospel here affect the gospel in our hearts and in our lives? The shepherds are called to love the Word of God, and the shepherd's duty and delight is to know the Word of God and to teach the Word of God. Now, this teaching comes in different forms. It could be uh, preaching. It could be um, one-on-one. It could be small groups and Bible studies. A shepherd devotes himself to shepherding the flock with the Word of God. And this is exactly why over the past five years I have been careful to directly preach from the Word of God. 
Some people have been like, this tastes like vegetables and I want cotton candy. And at first, their palate wasn't ready. Just like when New Year's rolls around and you go on that diet on January 1st and you drive by McDonald's for the first time and you smell the french fries and the car begins to shake and you want to pull in so bad because you can just taste that. And you're like, man, french fries would be good and I am just slaving away and it's like 8.30 in the morning already and I, I am, I'm ready to just to give it up. Then a month goes and you drive by McDonald's and you'd be like, yeah, I mean, I could, I could do without the french fries. And a month, two months later, you're like, french fries are gross, oh my. Uh, and you don't want them. Why? Because you want good, healthy food that tastes good. And you, your appetite and your palate begins to change. See, I could have preached self-help sermons that are sprinkled with a few scripture references. Think Dr. Phil with Bible verses. Dr. Phil does... Uh, I don't watch a show a lot, but when I stumble across it, a lot of times I'm like, yeah. I mean, he's giving good, solid self-help advice, but it's not gospel truth. He's not teaching the gospel. He's good, practical wisdom. Sometimes stop it. Just stop it. And and that's all you need. Just just stop it. But it's not the gospel he's teaching. Sometimes uh, I could have been uh, preached inspirational sermons that make you want to smile and live your uh, best life now. Nothing negative, nothing heavy, just cotton candy and sweet tea. Think Oprah for Jesus. Something like that. You know, that makes you feel good. And I could have preached topical sermons that are relevant to where you are today. Think like Christian TED Talks when you talk about things like that. Instead, it's my conviction and I base my ministry on it and I'm trying to raise up leaders to come beside me who labor to feed the congregation with the Word of God. To be able to not only be people who know the Gospel, know about the Gospel, and can drop big $5 theological words, but how do we take that Gospel and the truth and the beauty of who God is and make that reflective in our life that we reflect the nature and the heart of God in our homes, in our work, and in our play. We always want vegetables Uh, We often don't want vegetables when cookies or french fries are an option. But we begin to learn Scripture and we begin to love Scripture. Begin to recognize the value and the importance of doctrine in the Christian life. Not just for puffing us up with knowledge and pride and feeding self-righteousness, because if that's happening, you don't understand the Gospel. But we, as a means of stability and protection for the flock, Begin to realize the difference between teachers who peddle the word of God for profit and those who are giving you the life-giving marrow of the word of God. There are many false teachers out there, and you can go through the aisles of Lifeway, and it is terrible often what some of the things pass as Christian literature that are really only good for holding up doors or fueling a fire. There are many false teachers, and shepherds need to know the truth of God and love the flock enough to feed the flock the Word of God and show them how the Word of God is relevant and it matters and how you love your spouse and love your children and how you work and how you live and how you care for your body. If we don't have shepherds who know the truth and teach the truth, the flock will be susceptible to all sort of lies, half-truth, and deceptions. A faithful shepherd must hold firm to the truth and teach the truth.
but also to protect the truth and protect the flock. Notice at the end of 9, and also rebuke those who contradict it. One of the most dangerous places for a sheep is the Christian bookstore or Christian radio. Um, there's a lot of good stuff here. I'm not trying to shut, I'm not on like 95 thesis trying to shut down Lifeway or anything like that. Um, but not, and I, but I want you to know, don't be satisfied when people mention God. Oh, they mentioned God. That's wonderful. Well, sometimes that's great. Sometimes in a world that is uh, against the gospel, just acknowledging God is wonderful. And that's, that should be a reason for rejoicing. But don't settle there because there's a lot of whoever speaks the words also defines those words. And we need to be very careful that the def definition of who God is and what he has done and how, what the gospel is are clearly in alignment to the definition that scripture gives it. So what we need is we need to know that not all who claim the name of the Good Shepherd know the Good Shepherd. Going through our journey on Pilgrim's Progress on Sunday evenings and reading the book shows us there are a lot of people that walk the path, but a lot of people who aren't going the same place for the same reason. I cannot tell you how many times I have seen new books come out and just utter fear that one of y'all will pick that book up and start to read it. That when I read and find out what you're reading, I, it, it, I sometimes cringe because I know it's not faithful to the gospel, though they claim God and Jesus and some buzzwords along the way. Satan, if Satan can't convince you to deny the Good Shepherd, he will disguise his voice to sound like the Good Shepherd. There is a reason that Scripture said Satan masquerades as an angel of light. He comes with subtle, non-threatening ways and convinces you to follow a new and exciting and refreshing way that leads away from the Good Shepherd and the safety of the sheep. Therefore, one, we need to know the gospel. That's an easy application. We need to know the gospel so we can see the counterfeits. You don't study counterfeits. You study the actual dollar bill to be able to identify things that are, that are away. But we also need shepherds who know the voice of the sh good shepherd and are able to boldly chase away threats to the flocks. And I love how Calvin puts this. He says, the pastor ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep together. Children, come sit in the front. We're going to read a story. Okay, there's very, very different. And one for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. The scripture supplies him with the means for doing both, who is to deeply skilled in it, all be able both to govern those who are teachable and to refute the enemies of the truth. You think about just as parents have two voices when their child is wandering towards a busy street or reaching for a hot stove or about to stick a toy in the light socket, we need shepherds who firmly and lovingly rebuke anyone who threatens the eternal safety of the flock. We need shepherds who carry a rod that gently guides and comforts the sheep but is forceful and strong when wolves threaten and lions stalk in the darkness. Ocean Park, we need shepherds that hold firm to the truth, that teach the truth, and protect those who contradict the truth. 
for a healthy church has a plurality of shepherds exhorting and protecting the flock. For the quality of your elder plurality determines the health of your church. So as we think of this and think of this reality, and as we consider those who the Lord is raising up beside us, I pray that we would pray, and as we think through this as well, what is the Good Shepherd like? Jesus Christ, who is the Good Shepherd who lays his life down for his sheep, who loves his sheep, who invests in his sheep, and find leaders and shepherds who will also rise up and guide and, in a plurality and live lives that are examples and paradigms to the congregation and whose teaching and devotion is to protecting the sheep. Because ultimately, we remember our Good Shepherd and we want to be like our Good Shepherd who laid his life down for the sheep.